Welcome back to the program. Father Nagel is going to lead us in a scripture reading and a prayer this morning. I thought with the uh, celebration of Our Lady of Fatima, I begin with chapter 12 of Revelation verses 1 through 8. A great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child and wailed aloud in pain as she labored to give birth. Then another sign appeared in the sky. It was a huge red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven diadems. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in the sky and hurled them down to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman about to give birth to devour her child when she gave birth. She gave birth to a son, a male child, destined to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. The woman herself fled into the desert where she had a place prepared by God, that there she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels battled against the dragon. The dragon and its angels fought back, but they did not prevail, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Gracious God, I do ask your blessings through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, that we might be under your protection, and that we might be in this battle. Uh, we might be courageous, we might be faithful, humble, um, just, again, servants of you and your Son. We ask all these prayers through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Nagel. I appreciate that. Well, Today, as, as we record, it's the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima. I want to start with a uh, a couple of questions just around the feast day. And we're going to get to you, Father. Don't worry. We're going to, I, I know you were like, oh, Father, Father Lewis was like, all right, I get to talk. I, I, just, I can't wait to dive into my retreat. Uh, actually, you know what? I, I'll honor what I said. I said that we were going to start with you, check in. So, Father Lewis, how was your retreat? It was wonderful. I've been, you know, people have been asking, uh, you know, in the Diocese of Spokane, for the priests, um, a, a retreat is provided every year, and we have it at our, our Diocesan Retreat House. And, but every other year, it's it's optional, and we can go somewhere else if we like. But every then the on years, it's required that we're all together. And so this was one of the required years. But we hadn't had a, a Diocesan Retreat for ourselves um, these past, you know, this would have been the third year if we missed it. And we were supposed to do it in back in September, but, um, you know, COVID and all the rest, so... Um, so we didn't get to have it. So there, I, I went in with like a lot of hope and expectation, and excitement, and um, and and with like a, a deliberate plan. Like I got to make this the, the most of this, and and it really prevailed. Our speaker was Father Brett Brennan, who's uh, in the vocation circles. He's pretty well known. He wrote a book called "To Save a Thousand Souls," mm. and it's a great tool for uh, helping uh, for priests or whomever to help young men, high school men or or college age men to discern. In kind of a structured setting, and it's a it's a great book. Besides, and currently he is the house spiritual director, I think, at the Josephinum Seminary in Ohio. Uh, prior to that, he was in uh, at Mount Saint Mary in Emmitsburg, uh, Maryland. But in any event, um, yeah, just a great uh, retreat leader. He's done lots of these for priests, and and really focused on the theme of of just kind of recapturing um, our uh, our priestly excitement and our priestly identity through various ways. So, a priest is a beloved son of 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 Mary. And so, you know, appropriate for Fatima today. But one of my favorite talks was he called it Eucharistic Amazement and to just get lost in the amazement of the miracle of the Eucharist again, you know, as we're confecting the Eucharist in our hands, you know. And, um, yeah, just a just a great retreat. And it was great to to spend time with some guys I hadn't seen probably since our last retreat a couple of years ago. So, um, and it wasn't just me thinking this. Like, you know, across ages, you know, uh, ages and and uh, walks life uh, in terms of our ministries and so on. Like a lot of the guys were saying, this was a fantastic retreat. So it was it was great for all of us to get together. Yeah, nice. I love that. Uh, so you mentioned that this Eucharistic amazement was the thing that stood out the most. Yeah. And uh, so, in what way would you say that it impacted you specifically? Like, did did you come away? Here, here's one of the ways I say it. So when I coach uh, folks, there's the what. There's the so what, and then there's the now what. Mm-hmm. So the what is what you do, confecting the Eucharist as the presider at the the liturgy. Mm-hmm. The so what is, are you amazed? Right? Is there a sense of the meaning of what just happened here? Is the transformation of bread and wine into the precious sacred body and precious blood of Jesus, body, blood, soul, and divinity, right there, and you were the instrument used by God? Well, what's the now what? 
So the now what, you know, what I've observed already is that it has um, interiorly, if it's not seen outside, but outwardly, but um, my engagement with what's going on just seems more focused and deliberate because I'm, in, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm brought to a great, the greater heightened awareness of what's going on. And so to, to really be present there truly, that was another thing is kind of being truly present to the present moment. Um, cause that's where, that's where God wants to meet us. And so connecting that earlier theme of the retreat to this theme of Eucharistic amazement to be focused on this and, uh, and to really recapture the, the sense of the power of the Eucharist, which is interesting because just yesterday we had our, uh, latest, our last youth group of the spring before going into summer break. And, uh, we get a number of kids that come that aren't Catholic. And one of them, uh, came to me and said, father, can I talk to you for a few minutes? And, you know, by ourselves, and and he's one of the non-Catholic kids, and he says, I'm more and more convinced that the Catholic Church is where God is, I think is kind of how we put it. And it was because we just bring him up to the church at the end of youth group for prayer in the church, and oftentimes it's with the Blessed Sacrament, so the Eucharist. So the power of the Eucharist has been working on this kid, and he just can't, uh, you know, deny it anymore. So so I'm aware of it, and I'm, I'm seeing the fruits of that as other people are kind of talking to me about it. I don't know if you remember Father Benedict Rochelle, so a great mm-hmm. spiritual writer in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, and he, he was on Sacred Heart Radio quite a bit on, on EWTN. He talked about the desert experience of priests at the liturgy. He, I don't know if uh, Father Nagel, if you remember this, or Father Lewis, he talked about, you know, when do you have a desert experience? And it's like when you're dry and when there's a sense of emptiness, where there's a sense of like a lack of, of taste for things, a lack of fervor. And he talked about the way in which priests at the Mass, priests even at the heart of the Mass, doing the canon, the Eucharistic prayer, can experience the desert, a lack of any sensible connection, intellectual, emotional, heart, and yet going through that desert experience, uh, uh, first of all, acknowledging it. Like, it's not, this isn't just like a lack of faith, but the Lord is purifying and deepening faith in the act of consecration itself. Does that ring true or resonate? I don't know. First of all, do priests talk about this stuff, Father Nagel? Do you ever talk with other priests about, so when... The Eucharistic prayer is happening, consecration happens. What, what, what's going on inside of you? You know, I don't think that, maybe in spiritual direction, but I think in typical, um, typical conversation, I would say no. That's, at, least, at least in my experience, I don't think that's a, a, a big topic of conversation, but I do think it's a, a reality. I think there's, you know, there's truth there. I also remember Benedict Rochelle. He was, as you say, kind of a superstar in the 90s, and maybe, maybe later, I, I forget. But when I was in, when I was in the... Uh, Seminary. He was a, a big speaker. I remember him coming to Tacoma once when I was there uh, in the late nineties. But but I do think that's he, he's right about that experience that the priests you know priests have to live through and live in. But Louis, anything about that? Uh, did 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 the your spiritual director steal stuff from Father Benedict Rochelle and not acknowledge him? <laughs> <laughs> he might have. Um, yeah, you'd ask if uh, some of our priests have conversation about this. My priest prayer group, we do, we do, we do a lot. Um, we're just very candid and honest with each other. That, um, you know, maybe I'm more candid with them than than I ought to be. But, you know, I got four masses a weekend at St. Mary, three Sunday morning, and and I'll be perfectly honest. You know, as we're starting the third mass Sunday morning, I'm like, oh man, even I'm bored with my homily, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. But like you say, you know, invariably when it gets to the consecration, like you know, we're getting down to the heart of the matter. And, um, and, and it just, it, it, it gives me new energy. And maybe I thought, man, I'm looking forward to the rest of the day when I can just like, you know, um, re- relax or recharge or whatever. And, but, you know, because we've gone through the desert, you know, in the, in the, uh, light on the other side, the Eucharist that was confected at that mass, it, it gives me new energy. Like, man, I hope I got more to do today because I'm ready to go. And, um, yeah. So two last uh, thoughts around this. The first is that, uh, I, I think that it's more than like the path to growing in a sense of uh, ever more profound and even mystical connection with what's happening there um, is more than just exhortation. Like there's that uh, sort of kind of famous prayer that or exhortation that um, you can so- priests will sometimes read like, "Oh, priest of God, celebrate this mass as if it was your first mass, as if it was your last mass, as if it was your." only mass trying to like shake the lethargy out of this sense of saying 
yeah, this is just the third mass of the weekend. Let's kind of check the box. Let's crank it up so, again. Yeah. <laughs> Here we go, round three. And so that that sense of saying there's something more. Um, I, I don't know. Have you ever have you ever uh, been at a mass that was presided over by a um, by a saint or watched a video of it? For instance, Padre Pio, when he would get to the consecration, he'd freeze. And there'd just be a sense of, okay, how long is he going to be there just gazing upon the Lord in that moment of consecration? It's as if he gets it. It's as if he has a mystical awareness, super spiritual, you know, a deep spiritual awareness that the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, is here now in my hands. And he's caught up in it. Uh, I've been present at two masses, one with another stigmatist, mm-hmm. um, who, when the consecration came around, he just froze. And it was like everybody else got caught up in it. You know how you have that sense of silence where everyone's just caught? It, that was happening. And the other was my Latin professor. Mm. Uh, who was kind of a crass man, Father Reggie Foster. Oh, yeah. But when he came to do a mass in Latin at the North American College, and he, and he got to the Eucharistic prayer, and he got to the prayer of consecration, there was just this sense of frozen moment in time. The holy God was present, and, and he was swept up in it. It was really powerful. Mm. Have, have either of you fathers ever had an encounter like that? Um, with Pope, you know, I know he's not passed away and canonized yet, but Pope Benedict, um, I had the, uh, when he came to DC in his United States Apostolic Vision 2008, I was in seminary at TC at the Theological College and, and, um, and we got to be present at his mass at the, at the ballpark there, but I was too far away to really engage in, you know, to see, to see how he was doing it. But then when I was in Rome after my ordination, we, I went with another guy for a kind of a Thanksgiving pilgrimage and we were blessed to uh, be there for his Pentecost Mass at St. Peter's. And we were, as it were, living altars. We weren't con-celebrating, but they, we had cassocks. They stood up in surplus and red stoles, and we're holding uh, uh, a saboria of, filled with unconsecrated hosts, and we were as living altars, as how it was described for us, so that we were ready to go with the hosts we were going to need to follow a Swiss guard to wherever we're going to distribute Holy Communion. And, um, and, you know, Pope Benedict, when he speaks, he's very professorial, I think, in his preaching and his, you know, proclamation of the scriptures. It's like he's, he's teaching very calmly and lovingly, but teaching nonetheless his students. But then when he gets to the consecration, you know, it's like, you know, the professor has been shed and, and it's, you know, and he is, you know, in persona Christi and, and there's a, like a heightened focus and it's, he didn't freeze, but it definitely like ratcheted up a notch in terms of, you know, and the unveiling of uh, uh, that separates us from heaven was was peeled back one more layer, uh, and because he's he was uh, he was just so caught up in it, and it was pretty palpable. I thought that's that's really neat, Father Father Nagel. What about you? You know, I, I have not been if to answer the question literally. I I, I have actually I met uh, Cardinal Ratzinger at the time, and I met uh, John Paul II, but I never was at a mass uh, present at a celebration. And and in terms of others. You know, there was there's one priest at uh, Mundelein, um, Pat Boyle, who he had his own, you know, Reggie. Uh, he, Pat Boyle has his own. I think he's still with us, although he's getting pretty up there in years. But uh, he would celebrate uh, a mass every morning very early in a sort of a side chapel of Mundelein. And um, he would celebrate a mass like you're describing. Now, he's not a stigmatist or anything like that, but, but I do, there was a, a definitely a, a reverence and a quiet and a calm and um, sort of an immobility there too at the time. He was very, he was very deliberate, very calm, very quiet, and uh, lots of praying just in between words. And so, um, I, I, and I did feel like this was something that was a very deeply prayerful Eucharist. So, I mean, I, I probably point to him as somebody who might fit into this basic category of experience. So I, I want to ask the question, uh, and this, this also would go true, this would also be true for uh, confession. And that would be, do you uh, ever petition the Lord for uh, 
deeper, like almost, it's called mystical gifts or graces around those two sacraments, around how you preside at Eucharist. Like, have you ever prayed for uh, mystical insight into or a deep release of new insight, understanding, and encounter with Jesus as you, as you preside at Mass? Or for the gift of like, new gifts and graces, whether it is in um, reading hearts, sensing among everything that's being confessed what you ought to pay attention to, whether it's the gift of counsel, in order to have confessions be even more profoundly fruitful for those who go. So is that part of a pre-spirituality, to pray for those gifts? I don't know if it's part of every pre-spirituality, but I do do that. You know, there are times when I'm going in for confessions that that uh, I'm I'm distracted with, you know, thoughts or whatever's going on, and and um, and I'll catch myself like I don't think I'm as attentive, nearly as attentive as I need to be right now, and and I'll in the moment ask, you know, ask the Lord not out loud because the penitent might be right over there, but even like during the confession, like God help me to be more focused on what this person is saying right now, and connected with that, I think is being able to listen, like what's really what's really at root to what maybe this person's confessing. So as you say, reading hearts. And um, so I have done that. And it's, it's like almost instantaneous, like every time that I've just got a heightened awareness. And then maybe I don't say more words, but what I do say in counsel just uh, seems to strike right at the matter. And, and the person I feel like goes away um, uh, just great, more greatly consoled and heard. Brother you know, I, you know, I I, I prayer in prayer for reverence in in celebrating the sacraments. I, certainly in preparation beforehand, um, but I think your point is interesting. The mystical the mystical experiences and the gifts um, th- that I would say no, but it's an interesting idea uh, in the sense of um, to be explicit about that in in terms. Um, so you know, so the answer to that part of your question is no, but but it's it's uh, again an intriguing prospect for me. I think that's a, an interesting thought. Uh, I want to, um, well, let's actually take a break. When we come back, I want to build off of this point. I want to share with you something that I read about online that young priest did with the support of his parish. Back in a minute with Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Father Kurt Nagel and Father Jeff Lewis. And uh, on this Feast of Our Lady Fatima, we're talking a bit about, well, the priesthood, the sacraments, and mystical graces connected with that. Uh, Father Nagel, Father Lewis, you were just talking about praying for these things. I pray for that for priests. I do, especially with confession. I haven't done that as much around presiding at uh, at the sacred liturgy, at the Holy Eucharist. I have prayed for more anointed preaching, <laughs> but uh, maybe that's something that I'll start to pray for specifically for the two of you. Well, that'd be wonderful. Uh, is uh, a, a like literally like almost a supernatural manifestation of Christ's presence. To you and through you to the congregation, because to the to the assembly, because that can have such a powerful way of awakening faith and stirring faith um, among among the faith among the faithful. So, uh, you're welcome. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> we need it. Yeah. Here's the here's the thing that I read about online. This young priest who had I don't know if he had just read maybe uh, uh, rec- you know read again about. It was either the Curie of ours or Padre Pio and how they had spent something like 16 hours a day in confession. And he said, I want to do that. Have you heard about this, Father Nick? No, I've not. You haven't no, heard about no, this? I haven't heard of it. No. Did you hear it? No, no, I have not. Okay, so this young priest, he couldn't have been more than 30. And he said, I want to do that. I want to be in the confessional 16 hours a day, and I want to do it for a whole week. I want to see what that's like. And he got the support of volunteers to be able to like provide coverage for the logistical things and even in terms of like checking in on him, do you need some water, some vitamins, some whatever. And then there was the whole like promotional effort to say get the word out that this priest is gonna be in the confessional sixteen hours a day for this whole week. And he did it. And folks showed up, and he heard, I, I don't know, it was, the number of confessions was astounding. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. in the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of confessions. It might have even been over a thousand. I, should, I can maybe look it up during a break here. But he talked about the invigorating, enlivening aspect of that, uh, the powerful way in which he 
gained whole new insights into uh, the the gift of that sacrament. How oh. does that sound? Does that move you at all? Father Lewis is nodding his head. He's yeah. like, "I'm in. Let's go. I'm in. Let's go." Uh, you know, I I I, uh, I remember distinctly when I was at St. Peter. Uh, one of the things I added to the schedule was an additional confession time. And uh, in consultation with parishioners, we chose Friday evenings um, at 6 p.m., 6 to 7 p.m. And I, now I have that at St. Mary. And I think it was a Friday. It wasn't like a particular Friday, like a first Friday. It might have been a Friday in Lent. But um, I started at 6, and it was, I'm not kidding, it was nonstop for over two and a half hours. And uh, I didn't promote it or anything, but there was something going on that people needed to go to confession. And um, on the one hand, like by the end of that, and it was only two and a half hours, not 16, only one day, not all seven days in a week. But um, I felt on the one hand, like pretty exhausted and drained, but on the other hand, like completely exhilarated. And I even like, after I was done, I texted the priest in my program and said, I felt like John Vianney today. Here's what happened. And they're like, whoa. <laughs> but um, anyway, so... The idea intrigues me, but I, I felt like I had a, 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 a smidge of that, and um, and it was it was pretty uh, it was pretty uh, invigorating, that's for sure. You know, I I think I did, what popped in my mind is you know, uh, is talking about a spiritual workout um, that if you go running, you know, in the midst of it, there's lots of pain and it's it's hard, et cetera. But there are these, um, it's you know, you get the runners high not just during, but afterwards, you think, wow, I really felt. I feel good having done that. I feel feel good because I did do that. And I think maybe spiritually for priests as well, that in confession it can be a challenge. It can be a, uh, a workout, so to speak. But I, I, I do think that there's something about having left the confessional thinking, you know, I, th- that was good. That, that's, that's something that, again, something that's good for me um, in terms of who I am and how I act. I do think... Um, it is a, it's certainly an intriguing idea, and it's, there is an attraction there, the whole 16-hour thing. For a week, about, that's, I'm impressed. Um, mm-hmm. But something to take to prayer, that's for sure, I, because I do think there's something to it. All right, I looked it up while you were, you were all talking. You gave me enough time to find it, so I did, <laughs> I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, this priest is named Father David Michael Moses, and he, uh, it was during this past Holy Week, and he heard over 1,100 confessions— over the six days, including on Good Friday, how many, Father Nagel? Just on Good Friday, I would say three hundred. Over four hundred confessions wow. on Good Friday, and he was in the confessional up to sixteen hours a day. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah. So he, uh, there's an article on uh, Alitea. Uh, website where it, he gets interviewed about the experience, and, and there's a YouTube channel that goes into it a little bit as well. So I think that is super powerful. So Is he a pastor, though? I don't think so. He's a young guy. Look at him. Yeah, he's I know. Like 28. He's only 28 years old. I, I, uh, I would love to try to do that, maybe, but uh, well, I mean... It said he got... Um, he, <laughs> he was able to... He need Oh, his pastor. So he's not a pastor. Okay. So and then there were some him. visiting priests and volunteers who gathered okay. to support him to be able to do it. Yeah, so yeah, there's no way to do it by yourself, right? No, just well, to clear the schedule. I know. <laughs> but you clear it from clearing it for. Right. And yeah. if you're clearing it for hearing confessions, well, who wouldn't do that? Right. I mean, in my mind, the only thing that could like top that in terms of service or emergency is uh, emergency anointing. Um, but I mean, you know, I could round up a priest to help me with that. So <laughs> yeah. So that that could be a really interesting thing to think about. I don't know. I, yeah. I just thought that was interesting. Well, but, you know, a few years ago we had the the light is on thing. Yes, uh, uh, where you we were trying to do something uh, creative with with Eucharist. Now, might be this might be kind of now. I don't know if a, a week, but a day or two or something like this to say, hey, what if everybody um, did that? Each priest did that, set out a day, and say, you know, I want to I want to up my Sort of up the bar that I'm I'm setting uh, in terms. Of, I I don't know. It'd be an interesting thing. Uh, um, kind of a challenge to one another. Say, have mm-hmm. you done your? You know, it's kind of like running a marathon. Have you done your 16 hour day yet? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it is an intriguing idea. Well, if you're interested, I'm happy to support it because it would be it would be a powerful way of saying. I, honestly, I don't think there's one parish right that has enough people to be able to support 16 hours of confessions. Right. Frankly, but uh, if if it was if the net was cast more widely and it was we are going to um, create a humble but holy spectacle that draws a radiant light 
on the gift of confession and got that word out. I, I can imagine saying, I'm going to, kids, get in the car. Mm-hmm. Load up. Let's go. And we're going to go. And, you know, all of a sudden you show up at the, at the church and there are a hundred people in line for confession. I mean, how powerful is that? You probably have you know, praise and, you know, some kind of worship music going on or, or chant music or adoration as a context. I mean, that could be really powerful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hey, we got we're working out ideas live here on Sound Insight. I love this. This is <laughs> this is great. All right, this is Tom Kern. I'm with uh, Father Jeff Lewis and Father Kurt Nagel, and we are talking about well, in some ways, talking about the supernatural. And this this leads me to the theme of today, which is Our Lady of Fatima on the feast day. We're recording this on Friday on the feast of Our Lady of Fatima. So when I talk with my kids about um, sharing the gift of the Catholic faith. And showing signs of credibility that the Catholic faith is from God and the church established by Christ, one of the go-to signs of credibility is manifestations of the supernatural. And it, I, I, want, your, I want your thoughts, fathers, on just if you think about it, the way that the Lord seems to honor the apparitions, at least many apparitions, of the Blessed Mother with spectacular signs that are unexplainable at a human level, right? If I said, back and forth, fathers, name a spectacular sign associated with an apparition of the Blessed Mother, go. Father Lewis. Miracle of the Sun. Miracle of the Sun of Fatima, great. Yeah, give, me another, give me another apparition, Father Nagel. Well, that was the one I was thinking of. <laughs> I got him. Yeah, but the, you know, the idea of Our Lady of Guadalupe signs, too. Of course, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. the Tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yeah. Back to you, Father Nagel, go. Uh, the Miracle Spring at Lourdes. Our Lady of Lourdes, oh, yes. Goodness. All right, and what about Akita? You know, the I just read the statue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That that's what was the next one coming up for me. Oh, you were going to say that because well, I just I, I just I didn't, really I didn't want to that. expose you, Father. I didn't want. No, to that's good. That's good. I, you know, you're draining the well pretty fast here. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I, the miraculous I, I spring actually, is coming up. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. Well, we got that one. We got Our Lady of Lords. Is there another miraculous spring? No. I was, or are you talking about uh, Our Lady of Aguas Buenas? I are you familiar one. with that one no. down in? Uh, is it Ecuador or Colombia? Uh, one or the other. Uh, I think it's Colombia. And it's the miraculous image in the stone, in the rock, wow. where uh, Our Lady appeared inside a cave to a woman whose daughter had died. She carried the daughter there. The girl came back to life, and she ran to town. They all came out to see, and the Blessed Mother wasn't there, but in the stone itself was this colored image of our Blessed Mother and two saints wow. that had not yet been known to the New World hmm. uh, in the rock. And so people would come and chip away the rock at the f- surface level, and the image continued in, oh, wow. in like several feet of chipping away, and the image is still there. Oh, wow. And uh, wait a minute. This image in the rock is... It's going to be a million years old, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet it's there in the rock. And how do you explain that? Right. It, it, it's an incredible sign. Yeah, I have to say I've never heard of, of that apparition. Neither have I. That's yeah, Our Lady of Aguas Buenas. Okay. And so, uh, for me, I tend to think about that as one of the let's call it a sign of credibility or authenticity of an apparition itself is the presence of some outstanding, unexplainable occurrence that the, you know, the, the probable, the explanation that makes the most sense is it's an intervention from God because mm-hmm. that's what the folks who were there said it was, and there is no other scientific explanation. So you, you're either going to say it's the power of the brain that has been unproven to be able to do things that we don't know yet, or it's God. Right. <laughs> so take your pick. That's about it. So let's, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. When you are um, 
presenting the Catholic faith and presenting the place of the Blessed Mother and of personal or private revelations, not part of the deposit of the faith, part of official dogma, messages that come from apparitions, how much do you look to these signs of credibility uh, that we've already identified as um, means of saying we ought to pay attention to this message? So I... I um I actually refer to them f- frequently when when it comes up. Like for example, today as we're recording this on Friday, May thirteenth, I I had just come from visiting my eighth grade class, and uh, my teacher wanted me to speak to kids about Fatima and the, and the message of Fatima and the, and the three secrets and all this, and um, and I wanted to emphasize the miracle of the sun because you know eighth graders they know everything right, so they're very skeptical skeptical by nature, and and yeah okay yeah this is one of those you know legends those pious legends or whatever so. I will talk about how, you know, not only, you know, did Fatima happen, but the miracle of the sun happened. And, and I'll even emphasize the point that so many people were there at the last one and they all saw it. And a lot of those people who were there went out specifically to see it not happen because they were skeptics and atheists and they wanted to mock the whole thing. But they saw it and they reported on it. And it was even reported uh, in the New York Times like the next day or something. And said, so, I mean, this isn't some, some country bumpkin pious legend. This made the New York Times and, um, in 1917, and, and all these atheists saw it and will, will attest to it. And, uh, and I, I do that specifically to, because if, you know, if pious people are saying this, well, of course, you know, maybe there's some wishful thinking, whatever it is, you know, they see what they want to see. But when atheists are reporting that they saw it too, they can't explain it, and even like a lot of them would convert because of that experience, like that's pretty. That's a pretty powerful witness. So I, I, I appeal to that frequently. And I, I would say that's I do the same. But in terms of apologetics um, pr- approaches or tools, that would probably be it in terms of the apparition. But I, because actually, Father Lewis explained it pretty well right there. Uh, that's what I would say as well, because I do think it's it's. It's powerful for skeptics, et cetera. There, it really is something that you can. It's so modern, is for one thing. You know, it's less. Yeah, there's there's photographs of people there. You know, so it it's, it seems like it's more modern. It's more real, and the whole idea of something that's manifested to so many people who didn't believe. And uh, so again, it's really hard to doubt that something happened. So I do think the Fatima apparition is probably the, for me, the prime example of that. And, you know, the, the part B, part A is gets most attention at Fatima, which was the miracle of the sun dancing in the sky and approaching the earth, and people were, were ah, screaming in fear, <laughs> covering, and, and crying the out Russian to God. the Russian thing also was important. Right. Well, I was going to say the other, like, miracle itself at that moment was what was happening before the, the miracle of the sun? It was a downpour a of rainstorm. downpour, not just a sprinkle, mm-hmm. not just... Rain, but and they were ankle deep in soft mud. And after the miracle of the sun, what were the condition of people's clothing? Perfectly dry. Perfectly dry. And you can see that in the pictures Father Nagel mentioned. Yeah. So that for me is is it's like one B. Like mm. if one A is the sun, because people because it was an optical illusion, it was hysteria and all of that. You can explain. You can attempt to explain the idea that there was a hysteria among those who witnessed a phenomenon, but you you can't say hysteria turns soaking wet clothing perfectly dry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is not an explanation for that. No. Yeah. So I, I think that that has a particular power to it. Yeah. So that's one. One is like an event-based physical manifestation. But then what do you think about things like the enduring image of the tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe mm-hmm. that has a different quality to it. Mm-hmm. There's 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 a different means of creating a um, uh, a sense of uh, questioning and yet confirming. Okay, questioning: Do you really not believe there's a God, or do you really not believe in this apparition, or the truth of the Catholic faith, or the message of the Blessed Mother? How do you explain this? And there's so there's the uh, the enduring unexplainability that has again an amazing quality to it. To go back to your uh, amaz- uh, like the uh, being amazed Eucharistic amazement. How about being Tilma, <laughs> supernatural apparition amazement? Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, my uh, the deacon we have at the St. Mary Deacon Dan Glott, he's got a particular uh, devotion, I think, to Our Lady Guadalupe and a fascination with the tilma and just loves telling people about, about it and what science has kind of explored about it. And some of the things he points out is that there's a heat that registers off the tilma, and it registers at 98.6, and that the image on it is, you can see it under microscope, it's not on the tilma, it's like just off the tilma, so it's like a hovering image. And uh, the the color of her robe, is the, that that kind of really cool turquoise blue, is not a color naturally found in nature. I mean, we can make it now, but not 500 years ago. Like, there's a supernatural quality to that shade of turquoise. And when you walk at different angles, it changes in its shade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and, and I mean, on and on and on. There's, on a, yeah, so, there's so many, many right. aspects of that that are stunning. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that kind of supernatural manifestation. Then you slide over to Lourdes, and Lourdes has an enduring quality that's different. It still changes lives today. Mm-hmm. And even if people want to write off all of the, oh, look at the wheelchairs, and look at the... Have you ever been to Lourdes, Father? Yeah. I mean, the number of crutches. I have, I have not. Oh, my goodness. Father Nagel, you have to go. I'm leading a <laughs> pilgrimage in October, Father. You should join me. Oh, <laughs> stunning. Yeah. It's the, the number of crutches and then these little silver medallions that right. are signs of favors and miracles received. It goes on and on. It's a bit overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But even if you want to just wash away all of those, you still have the rigorous, scientifically unexplainable by medical expert, instantaneous healings of those who are on the doorway of death or received some kind of medical improvement or change that is completely um, unfounded in anything natural. Right. That is a different level and kind of sign of credibility. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that you're right. The, the healings, um, yeah. they're just lots of just fascinating and dumbfounded stories. So, uh, and then the last one, I, just to point to, is Akita. So, Our Lady of Akita. Uh, fathers, uh, do you know about Our Lady of Akita? Not much. I mean, I'm a weeping statue. I, didn't, I knew about that. I didn't know that was Akita, though. Yeah, Sister Asagawa, the... the uh, the Japanese sister who was deaf and received her hearing through this apparition of the Blessed Mother, and uh, and she brought the same message. It was a confirmation of the message of Fatima, mm, brought up yeah. to date. Yeah. Like, hey guys, like I don't know how many times I have to keep coming <laughs> and saying this, but let me reiterate. Let me let me say this again. What I said back then, a hundred years ago, it would have been about it was like in early seventies. So you're on 60, the clock. Yeah, you're on the clock, everybody. <laughs> uh, and and just to make sure that you can't, you know, write off the idea that a deaf nun now can hear. Let's have the statue start weeping, and there's no. Other explanation for how does water come from marble? There, there, you just can't explain that. Yeah. You know, so, uh, Father Nagel, anything that you'd want to add in about uh, Our Lady of Akita? I think you know, it's fairly recently that I started reading up in, uh, on Akita. That, that was something that's kind of new for me. But it, the whole connection with Fatima was, uh, was a fascination for me. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've read about it. I've never been there or anything. But um, it is... Again, it's kind of a continuing um, confirmation of a previous appearance. So the idea that there's connection between these, I think, was kind of a fascinating piece of of that. And the last point uh, I'll make is that uh, what about apparitions that tend to have a sense of popularity but lack that these signs of credibility? Um, I think, of course, of Medjugorje is probably the biggest one where – I first was fascinated by it. I went there. It was very moving, the faith of the people and all of that. But I've got I've got bigger question marks than yeses in my mind and heart when I hear about and read about the things that have happened there, about the visionaries, about the the local Franciscan priests and the the connection to the to the local bishop, the ongoing nature of these messages. It just doesn't have the same ring of authenticity, and in fact, there are a number of troubling signs, in my opinion. That's that's my own read of the situation. Yeah. I, so. I, I don't have any great knowledge of that either, but it's interesting 
that it seems like Rome doesn't either. It's it seems like you know they, they're very clear sometimes saying, oh, this is bogus. Don't do this. This is, this is false. Or others say, yeah. Um, after a few years, yes, we confirm this. But it seems like there's still this big question mark. Everybody says, okay, we're going to make the final determination, and then it doesn't really completely happen. So it just seems like a strange question mark to me. Yeah. All right, we're up against a break. When we come back, we are finally going to. We've got beyond our introduction. Yes. So our, our opening uh, <laughs> opening chat. And we're going to take a look at some quotes from Our Lady of Fatima. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kernan with Father Kurt Nagel and Father Jeff Lewis. And we have some quotes from Our Lady of Fatima. And I know we're going to get through all of them. <laughs> yes. Not even a question. Uh-huh. We are not going to get through all of them. So, <laughs> Fathers, I'm going to let you cherry pick among, we have 12 quotes here, but I'm going to let you cherry pick the ones that you would like to identify so that we're not going to just start at number one and go from there. So, Father Lewis, you're eager. Which one do you want to start with? Well, number one, actually. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, the first quote is on the, the theme of the punishment of the world. Our Blessed Mother can no longer restrain the hand of her divine Son from striking the world with a just punishment for its many crimes. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, as, as we were, I was looking at this uh, before we began the program, and, and that jumped out at me immediately because what came to mind was the the famous painting of the Last Judgment by Michelangelo on the on the altar wall of the Sistine Chapel. And I've spoken to this to you know parishioners in, in other areas too. But one of the there's lots going on there. If you're not familiar with it, you can look it up. But there's something like 400 plus individual characters in it, and a lot of horrifying things going, on, a lot of chaos. But for me, the most terrifying of all is if you look at the interaction between Jesus and Mary in the upper upper third of the of the whole painting, and Jesus is coming in glory. This is the last judgment. And uh, and as he's kind of facing toward us, you know, Mary's to our left, to his right, and he's got his right hand raised, and and his ha- right hand is raised, and it's an interesting posture, his right hand, and his mother is looking away from him and kind of shying away. Not that Jesus is backhanding his mom or something like that, but it's like this gesture of you know, basta, enough. Like your your role is now over. You can no longer speak for them. My time has come. So it's. I mean, this is the last judgment, and and uh, you know, Mary is our our champion intercessor, and when she can no longer do anything for us, like you know, this is it. The red alert is is sounding, and and Jesus is large and in charge now. And so, anyway, you know, reading about that just called that to mind. Like, I don't even, I can't even appeal to the Blessed Mother anymore. This this is this is it's all over. This is it. I I think that I would jump on just what we talked about the. Just the weirdness and the proof of, of even against skeptics that there's there's a there's a strangeness about Fatima that seems deliberately meant to uh, underline its credibility in the sense of it's you know something's weird happened here so you better listen because lots of these things that would go against what the present age would want to hear like not surprisingly I suppose but this idea of um, the the striking the world with just punishment it's that's not the way most of us think that yeah that's that's the way i see jesus but it, nevertheless so it's i find this very bracing um in the sense of um yeah we mean it um i guess that's the the, the sort of thing that takes me um sort of by the by the collar when i see this first of the quotes you know this is it's serious and you better get with it it's not something that we it's not something that we would think up ourselves. Well, and okay, so do you have so I, I put on my theologian's hat a little bit and also just my sense of is there an anthropomorphism from the, the standpoint of somehow Mary almost is being presented as more merciful than Jesus. Right. That you know, it's just, the image is Jesus is like, let me at him. Like I can't wait to get in there and smash. And the Blessed Mother's like, no, no, hold back. I am more merciful than you are, and I know you want to come in with the hammer of justice, but I'm the mother of mercy. And there's something about that that seems uh, on just like a direct line, like direct statement. It's just wrong. Like, you know, the Father is the Father of mercies. Jesus is divine mercy. Uh, you know, the ocean of mercy, all of this. So there's, a, I think there's a way in which this reflects a bit of the language of the time. Mm-hmm. Like if you read Our Lady of La Salette, 
there's a similar message of the Blessed Mother is trying to hold back the Father, the hand of the Father who's coming with with severe judgment upon the world. And so um, I think that there's a difference between the truth about judgment, the truth about the fact that sins beget punishment, and the language that's used to describe the way in which God's uh, judgment reaches us. I don't know. I, d- d- does that ever, does that ever, uh, like, th- what I just talked about, Father Lewis, does that ever like, get you thinking in those same ways or, or make you wonder, or am I just off? You can say I'm off if you want. Uh, you're off. No, I won't say it. <laughs> Um, I mean, it, the, the way that the, the quote is worded, for sure, you know, it makes it sound like that Jesus is like, let me at him, let me at him, and, and, and Mary is the last bastion of security against that wrath. Uh, but maybe, like you say, maybe it's the kind of the language of the time. So, you know, these, these messages are given us in a language that people will hear and receive because it's, it's, um, it's, it's just where they're at. And I started thinking about the connection to a later quote, you know, I'm stealing too, but wars are a punishment for the sins of mankind. So this is in the midst of World War I. After a tumultuous century when there was Napoleon and then revolution, 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 and maybe a lot of the people are thinking like, maybe the end times are upon us. There seems to be a lot more wars, larger, deadlier, and more frequent. And um, and so maybe the wrath of God is coming and, and the people are drawn. I mean, how many Marian apparitions did we have in that same century? trying to maybe bring messages of, of uh, prayer and peace and consolation, but also like, you know, penance, because sinners are why the wars are happening. And uh, so maybe and maybe that's a connection that they're, that's just where the people were at. Yeah, I, it's kind of, there's a sort of a wedding piece of Cana-esque element here in the sense of, even in that situation, it's, it's kind of like Mary and Jesus are set up as, as you know, uh, opposites or or in, in, in conflict yeah. in conflict some way, and, and I don't believe that any more than here. Um, so I, I would agree there probably is some way in which you're talking about okay how do we how do we receive this, but I also do think there's that that idea of divine justice eventually, you know that relationship with divine mercy. Um, even if you look at the divine mercy uh, diary of Faustina etc., that it's the same message comes out there too. Uh, I think it's number 83 in her diary or something. So there's a, there is a consistency here. Mm-hmm. Father Neil, you're flexing. You're quoting the diary of, of St. Faustine, number 83. I'm like, wow. Well, that's an interesting Man, paragraph. Like the scriptures. I like that. That's great. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like that. It's, it's coming out yeah. of the same situation. It's 20 years later, but... Um, you're right. Yeah, it's it is one of those things where you can you can mine the diary of Saint Faustina and end up with some of the most amazing quotes connected to divine mercy that will console you. Right alongside other yeah. sets of quotes that should get you shaking in your boots and repenting quickly. Right. So they can live side by side, just not in they don't live in easy tension. That there's that sort of paradox of our faith. All right, we're against the break. When we come back, Father Nagel, you're going to get our last quote. So back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. I'm with Father Kurt Nagel, Father Jeff Lewis. Father, we are, we've got two minutes. some quotes to choose from. Now, Father Lewis kind of squeezed two into one there, so he kind of cheated a little bit. But yeah. where do you want to go? With well, the, uh, I, I, I'm going to do a similar thing, but I'm going to do a, a juke. Um, I'm going to do a head fake here a little bit. I would. I like number three, the the war, you know, about Russia and her heirs, another war coming if we don't change, et cetera, because I like the historical. First off, I think that's really fascinating that you know Mary gets specific um, in terms of because oftentimes it's not the way it is in terms of these apparitions, but there's that. But I think I I will skip that because there's lots to say about that in terms of how this was received and the timing and et cetera of when it, when it happened. But I think number five. Um, Sins of the flesh. More souls go to hell because of the sins of the flesh than for any other reason. And I mentioned that one because, again, this goes completely opposite of our tendencies today, um, where we say, yeah, yeah, sins of the flesh are serious, but those other ones are so much more serious. And, and we want to, because this, again, we're re- reacting against previous eras where there was so much pre- um, preaching against uh, sexual sins, et cetera, that we, we had this, you know, we went in the opposite direction. But this is, again, this today should be kind of a scary, um, bracing uh, message as well. I, so I throw that out there thinking, let's not pretend. 
Well, let's, okay, so let's look at the quote. More souls go to hell because of the sins of the flesh than for any other reason. How about this, fathers? Let's go back to confession. When you think about the souls that come into your confessional or come in for counseling and guidance, maybe it's parents and maybe it's uh, themselves, where do you see the most demonic bondage? What are the issues? What are the pressing uh, situations that these folks come in, whether it's the confessional or whether it's, again, counseling? Um, wouldn't it be the sins of the flesh? Uh, I think uh, that how you phrase that question, where is the strongest bondage? I think I would think a class of sin that I hear confess most would be in the class of sins of speech. But attached to that, people would say, I know I, I should do better. I know I can do better. But with sins of the flesh, it's like, and I feel like I can't get over this. Right. They use that phrase. Like that I bondage. Can't, it's bondage. And so I think you're right. Sin, sexual sins are, are where the strongest bondage are, in my experience. And especially pornography and masturbation is right up there, obviously, um, in terms of just, and, and some relationships as, to, as well. But it is a situation where this is a clear place where I think many people see the sin of it, and but they also just despair of of getting out of it. Well, and if we had we had a whole other program, we could talk about the way in which the the devil I um, put it right out there the devil and the whole realm of the demonic are utilizing the sins of the flesh to ensnare innocent souls and uh, to corrupt minds and hearts and to confuse especially sexual identity mm -hmm. that so much of the transgender movement is utilizing literally demonic impurity and uh, a demonic use of entry points of young people's confusion and questioning around their own sexual desires to stir and twist them into places of dark bondage that is so devastating and it, we have to, like, raise the alarm. And I think Our Lady of Fatima, in, in a simple way, does that. A lot of souls are experiencing a kind of hell on earth as a result of the sins of the flesh, not even a question. So there's a nice happy way to end our program today on the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima. Well, a sobering message. Fathers, you have uh, 30 seconds each. Where do you want to uh, take us in the last minute of the program? Just a final word, Father Lewis. Well, you know, we're past Friday now, but the bishops have called for a day of prayer and fasting on Our Lady of Fatima uh, for peace and civility to prevail in our country because of this leaked SCOTUS uh, uh, Supreme Court thing. And um, if we miss that chance, you know, now we're in the next week, um, we can still do something in reparation and offering it up for, for the greater cause for that intention. I would encourage people to do that. I just piggyback on that and for my 30 seconds, because I was thinking about that as well in terms of the, the it's going to get, the need for that is just going to grow in these next months, and, and the Catholic Church is going to have to shift, shift under the whole thought process about what does pro-life look like now, and what's our mission now, and what's, what do we have to accomplish now? Because I think it's going to be a, a change, a shifting of gears. And my, my last three words are penance, penance, penance. Yeah. Uh, penance and reparation, one of the, I think, one of the... Uh, challenges of the church today again so prophetic in 1917 that are that that was a core part of the message of our lady of fatima penance and reparation for all of the sins and offenses and blasphemies against our lord the blessed mother and the eucharist so all right thank you so much for being with me today god bless you join me tomorrow for more sound insight